Hello all, it's Thursday, May the 17th. I'm Laura Lee Seaman. So I was away last week. I had the privilege of going on the grade seven camping trip with one of my middle daughters. So much fun. Grade seven is such a great year. But of course, while I was gone, a ton of things happened. Like, wow, a ton of things. But before we get into all that, let me start by reminding you to check out my video series, The Abortion Debate. And you can find that series on my YouTube channel, or on my website, lauraleesiemens.com. Look under the video tab. There's a new video there each Monday. You can also find my blog, uh, some past podcasts, all on that website. So go to lauraleesiemens.com. So we're continuing, first of all, before we get into everything that happened this week, we're going to continue with a little bit of Canadian history. Actually, while I was on the camping trip, I met another parent who introduced me to this great website with a lot of Canadian history. And I'm going to be bringing some of that information to you as the weeks come. In the meantime, the year was 1937. 62-year-old Prime Minister Mackenzie King was on a trip to meet with a foreign leader. King was the leader of the Liberal Party and had always been kind of an awkward man. He did believe strongly he was destined to do great things, not just in Canada, but in the world. As a 39-year-old, King had been disgusted by World War I. King had watched the leaders of Canada talk about the need for brave men to fight for freedom. In King's eyes, the leaders of Canada were kind of to blame for the war. The idea that Canada could have a military glory and a soldier could fight for Canada, that was in King's eyes a really dangerous ideology. King felt that Canada should not really have been involved at all in the war. And in his eyes, there's really no bad guys or good guys in the war. So now, more than 20 years later, he's headed to Germany to meet a man who he believed would bring peace to Europe. As a prime minister, one of his duties was to meet with foreign leaders. And today's meeting was one he had looked forward to. He greatly admired this leader and was fascinated with the way he ruled his country. As the day started, King read a passage from the Bible, and the passage was about lions. On this day, King noticed that everywhere they went, he saw lions. As King rode the train from Paris to Berlin, where he would meet, would have his meeting, he looked into the sky and he noticed the clouds. And they looked like great lions, and they were facing towards Germany. As King reached Berlin, he got to visit a zoo. And the King was so excited because when the zookeeper allowed him to pet one of the baby lions. Mackenzie King would write in his diary, the lion has appeared over and over again. The lions were a sign. This was a great leader he was meeting with. He must be a messenger from God. This leader could clearly bring peace to Europe, peace that was so needed. After World War I, there was so much unrest and Europe needed a leader, a great leader like this, Adolf Hitler. Mackenzie King was sure of it. The Third Reich was holy and the meeting the Fuhrer would take King to the highest parts of his spiritual journey. King would write in his diary, this is the day for which I was born. Edward Pickering was King's secretary and he looked at him and said, I imagine Mr. King, this is the greatest day of your life. Before meeting with Hitler, Mackenzie King met with other leaders of the Nazi party. And King was eager for them to know that he was from the riding of North Waterloo. And this was significant because Waterloo was where the Germans had defeated Napoleon. 
And although King tried to impress the Nazis with this information, they really were not impressed at all. As King made his way into the meeting with Hitler, King felt the presence of every Mackenzie ancestor, and he would say that he could hear them talking to him and encouraging him. Mackenzie King was completely enthralled with Hitler. In his diary, he wrote that as they talked, he couldn't help but thinking of Joan of Arc. Hitler was so wise and mysterious. This man would be the one who could deliver Europe from tyranny. As King spent time with Hitler, he admired how much he loved nature. Although the term environmentalist was not a thing at the time, Hitler seemed to embody this world view. He served King delicious vegetarian food, and they talked about much more than just the fate of Europe. They talked about religion, the beauty of the world around them, and the similarities of Germany and Canada. King actually brought with him a biography of himself, and they looked at pictures of Berlin, Ontario. They talked about how the city had changed its name to Kitchener during the First World War to break ties with Germany. But King did not see himself as a person from Kitchener. He was from Berlin, and he still had ties to Germany. The two leaders talked about the great construction work that was being done in Germany, and King admired the work that had been done. King promised to make sure that nothing would be done to stop Germany from being allowed to continue its construction. There was hope now that Germany would once again be a great nation. Now that they had this great leader, King would write about how Hitler had a knowing smile and how smooth his skin was. Hitler was clear, we don't want war, we only want peace. Our people simply want to live as a peaceful nation. This is an actual quote from Hitler from their meeting. Let us assume a war came, what would it mean? Regardless of who won, both sides would lose a generation of men, only to then conquer an enemy whose territory had been completely reduced to ashes. We would have obliterated civilizations of both countries, indeed a greater part of Europe. All that would be left would be anarchy. King would write about how humble Hitler seemed as he talked about peace. The meeting would end up only being about an hour long. To King, he saw it as a highlight of his life. Hitler probably never thought of the meeting again. While King had grandiose views of peace and a gun-free zone with beautiful nature that is respected and cared for, Hitler was actually getting ready for war. What history would show is the only thing the two men had in common was their dislike of the Jewish people. Now before you think, King had this great view of Hitler, but the truth of who Hitler was hadn't been exposed yet. You're wrong, it had. As King entered Berlin, Jewish children had already been banned from attending public schools. Books written by Jews had already been burned publicly. Books that anyone spoke of that had a different view than the Nazis had been burned publicly. Hitler had already passed laws that stripped the Jews of their rights to own property. In fact, Jews no longer had the rights of the rest of the German citizens. Many Jews had already been forced out of their jobs. Guns had been confiscated from every Jew and from most of the rest of the citizens. Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, had already been published and was sold everywhere in Germany. This book was very open about Hitler's hatred of the Jewish people, and it also talked about Germans' need to take more land. As King walked throughout Berlin, Germany, troops were marching in the streets, and this went against the treaty that had been signed at the end of World War I. But King did not speak against any of the evil that he 
could see already spreading across Germany. Instead, he returned inspired. He would do for Canada what Hitler was doing for the Germans. To start, he would begin construction on some of the buildings in the capital. Before leaving Germany, King actually had an out-of-body experience. He suddenly saw himself standing in front of the parliament buildings, where he saw huge rose gardens and everything was beautiful. Two years later, 300,000 Canadians would take the same trip. 40,000 would not return. World War II was about to start. King, however, would not place the blame for the war on Hitler. In King's eyes, Poland, he believed, provoked the war. Other countries had been too difficult and had refused to work with Hitler. As the war ended and the complete horror of what Hitler had done to the Jews came to light, the world was horrified. Britain had control over the land that is now Israel. And you can read more about the history of Israel and uh, who has controlled Israel on my blog. Check out my website and click on the blog link. I have a whole section on history. Two of the most popular blogs that I have are the history of Israel and why Israel has the right to defend itself. So Britain tried to divide the land into two nations, Israel and Palestine. You see, in the land that is now Israel, there was two groups of people, the Jews and the Arabs. So dividing into two, giving Israel part of it to the Jews and Palestine part of it to the Arabs. Well, the Arabs wanted all of it. They still wanted every single Jew dead. The Arabs refused a nation if Israel would also receive a nation. But the Jews, they accepted. And so Israel was reborn. That was 70 years ago this week. Well, King was not happy. He believed giving the Jews a state of their own would bring more war. However, Canadians had a different view. Most Canadians were excited about the rebirth of the Jewish land. The United Church, though, they protested the Jewish state. And the Communist Party protested the Jewish state. And King was also against the Jewish state. As the nation of Israel was established, the Arab nations kicked out every single Jewish people. Families that had lived in the land for more than 2,000 years all kicked out. In fact, to this day, Jewish people are banned from even visiting these lands. King did not have anything to say when this happened. That should really not be a surprise. Jews were being kicked out of their homes as he visited Germany, and he had nothing to say about that either. In 1948, all of the Arab countries came together and attacked Israel. King was not horrified by the huge gang up on this brand new country. No, he was horrified that the Jews fought back and won. In his eyes, the Jews should have just surrendered. He was angry that more Arabs died than Jews. King would say the only upside to having Israel as a state was that he could send the Jewish refugees from Canada to another country. King would be prime minister for 22 years, the longest serving prime minister in history. The conservative leadership that followed him was very pro-Israel and actually saw themselves as Zionists. So a Zionist is someone who believes Israel has a right to exist and that the Jews have the right to run their own country. Not much has changed over the 70 years. Liberals still have this view of Israel and the Jewish people. Communism is now a much more popular ideology, and King's worldview is the same one being taught in our schools. These last two weeks have shown us that the ideology that King had is very present in Canada and also in America today. King denied the darkness of the Nazi ideology. 
he thought war would be avoided if all the countries could just appease Hitler a little bit more. In the 1930s, the Western world ignored Germany as it became a police state, began killing Jews, and clearly wanted to dominate Europe. The West said Hitler is the Jews' problem, not ours. Today, not much has changed. Iran is a police state. Its stated goal is to kill every Jew. It hates the West, and it wants to dominate the Middle East. What do we say here in Canada and the United States? Iran, that's the Jews' problem, not ours. In fact, only China has killed more people than Iran. Over 6,000 men have been killed just for being gay. Women are held as captives, unable to leave their homes without the permission of their husbands, and are forced to cover at all times. Iran is the only country in the world with the stated goal of destroying another country and killing all its citizens. Iran has the same worldview as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It's a radically Islamic country run by extremists. So last week, Trump announced he was ending the Iran deal. Now just to clarify, this is a deal, not a treaty. And here's the difference. To have a treaty between the countries, the House and the Senate have to vote and agree on it. When Obama tried to make a treaty, they saw there was no way it was going to pass. Even the Democrats said they would vote against it. But Obama decided to make a deal. Since it was not signed by America, it was only signed by the president, it was a deal and not a treaty. So what's the deal? Well, they asked Iran not to make nuclear bombs. In exchange, Iran would get $150 billion and would, not be allowed to and would now be allowed to trade with U.S. and its allies again. Basically, Obama made Iran great again. Iran was allowed to keep its nuclear program, it just couldn't make nuclear bombs. And who would make sure they were not making bombs? Well, Iran would check on itself to make sure they were not making bombs. Also, it was only a 10-year deal. After 10 years, they could do whatever they wanted. So three years into this deal, the deal lands on Trump's desk. Israel's special forces infiltrate Iran's network and snuggle out information proving that they are still currently making nuclear bombs. So the deal is not even working anyway. Trump says, I'm out of the deal. The day Trump says he's out, Iran attacks Israel. They shoot missiles at Israel. Now, Iran didn't shoot these missiles from Iran. They actually have a whole base set up in Syria, which is right next door to Israel. So they shot them from there. Israel has this thing called the Iron Dome. Now, this is not an actual dome, but it's these really special missiles. And they can see when a missile is coming. They can track where it's going to land and then they can shoot it down if it's gonna hit anything. So while some missiles hit Israel, these were only ones that hit empty fields. All of the ones that would have hit a building or civilians were shot down by these missiles. Israel then counterattacked Iran and completely destroyed their facility in Syria. While Israel was fighting with Syria on one side of their border, Hamas is attacking them on the other side. Gaza is currently controlled by Hamas, a terrorist group. But to be clear, this terrorist group was actually voted in by the Arabs that live there. They want one thing, to kill Jews. Hamas is extraordinarily evil. They don't even try to hide their goal. Our goal, kill Jews. For more than 70 years, the world has tried to create peace between the Arabs and the Jews. The Jews want to live in peace and have Israel as their home. The Arabs want Israel destroyed and all the Jews killed. How do you negotiate with someone whose starting point is that you become dead? Where do you go from there? Israel has multiple times accepted peace agreements. In fact, Gaza is in the hands of the Arabs because Israel gave it to them in hopes of getting peace. The Arabs have only refused every peace deal. There is currently a peace deal on the table 
And at this point, some of the Arab countries are actually telling people of Gaza to just sign the treaty. But right now, they are not. The Jews have been in Israel since Abraham. When Moses brought the people to the promised land, the promised land, that was Israel. King David ruled Israel, and the capital of Israel has always been Jerusalem. However, out of fear of making the Arabs angry, countries set up their embassy not in the capital, but in Tel Aviv. All official business is still done in Jerusalem, so each day the embassy workers have to drive into Jerusalem to do business. October of 1995, Congress voted to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. Clinton vowed he would move the embassy. He didn't. Bush vowed he would move the embassy. He didn't. Obama vowed he would move the embassy. He didn't. Trump vowed he would move the embassy. He did. This week, the embassy opened. It was amazing. If you did not get to see it, you need to find it on YouTube and watch it. Over and over again, the glory went to God. It was unbelievable. Meanwhile, Hamas is still fighting. They're calling it a protest. And they're calling the people protesters. It's not. It's a violent riot. And they're violent rioters. It's been going on for two months. So what is their goal? Their goal is to break down the fence, get into Israel, and kill Jews. The fact that they carry with them maps the shortest route to Jewish neighborhoods so that if they make it through the fence, they get to the homes and kill the Jews as quickly as possible. The NPR actually interviewed members of this riot and asked them what their goal was. The response was, I'm quoting here, we want to break into Israel and kill as many as possible. Hmm, that sounds peaceful. When they were asked, why are you flying Nazi flags? They said, because we want the Jews to know we want them to burn. Okay. So far, they haven't gotten through the fence. They've burned mass amounts of tires in an attempt to create so much smoke, the military won't see them cutting through the fence. They've flown kites with small bombs attached that have landed in the fields and started huge fires destroying crops. Entire farms have been destroyed. They fly the Nazi flag and they paint it on their kites. Just to clarify, they want the Jews to see the Nazi kites that are on fire and know they want the Jews to burn. At the time the embassy was opening, Hamas sent even more people to the border. The Israeli soldiers shot at the people trying to get through the border. They also sent tear gas into crowds in order to stop them so they wouldn't have to shoot like giant crowds of people. In one of the crowds was a baby. Now, one, there's no way for these Israeli soldiers to know there was a baby in that crowd. And two, what kind of a lunatic brings a baby to a war zone? Sadly, the baby died because of the tear gas that was shot into the crowd. Let me tell you why that baby was there. Hamas is handing out money to people at the protest. $200 if you get hurt, $500 if you get shot, $2,000 to your family if you get killed. So they're bringing babies, they're bringing their children to get hurt so they can get more money. Now the world is outraged. Is it outraged because iron? Now the world is outraged. Now, why are they outraged? Is it because Iran is trying to destroy Israel and kill the Jews? No, that doesn't really outrage them. Is it because Hamas is attacking the border with the goal of killing the Jews? No, they just kind of see that as a peaceful protest with some people flying kites. That seems peaceful enough. No, they're mad because Israel is actually protecting themselves. How dare those Jews fight back when they're being attacked? The UN had an emergency meeting because of the slaughter of the Hamas. The media actually said it was not fair 
because so many Arabs have died, but no Jews have died. Are you saying every time an Arab terrorist is killed trying to break into Israel, a Jew should be sacrificed to make it equal? What are you saying? Should the Israeli military kill the sacrificial Jew or would you like them to send the Jew over to be killed by the Arabs? Please, media, explain how you would like the Jews to make sure it's fair. The Jewish people have tried to make peace. They have given up the Temple Mount. At this point, it is illegal in Israel for a Jewish person to pray or sing at the Temple Mount. You'll be arrested by Israeli soldiers if you are Jewish and praying at the most holy site for Jewish people. Meanwhile, there's exactly zero mentions of Jerusalem in the Quran. And their two most holy sites are in Saudi Arabia, not Israel. But once again, our prime minister is siding with the groups that want to kill the Jews. Trudeau is outraged at the deaths of Hamas and is calling for the Iran deal to stay intact. It's just history repeating itself. But today, it's even worse than 1938. Because in the 30s, we didn't have members of the Nazi party coming and living in Canada. But today, we have the very people who want to not only kill the Jews, but also Christians as well, living in our neighborhoods. Here in Canada, just an hour from my house, lives a member of ISIS. The government knows about him. He confessed to killing in the name of ISIS, and the government is doing nothing about it. He goes by the name Abu Hufasa al-Qaeda. That's not his real name, and I know I don't even come close to pronouncing it right. But they won't release his real name, because he lives in Toronto. He's 23 years old. Here's his story. We'll call him Abu. So Abu grew up in a Muslim family, but they never really practiced. They went to the mosque maybe once or twice a year. His sister and his mother, they don't wear any head coverings. But for some, guy, but for some reason, this guy decided he would leave Toronto and go to Syria and fight for ISIS. He told his whole story to a reporter for the New York Times. In the interview, Abu says he practiced killing first on dolls, and then he went to gels that felt more like human flesh. Eventually, he became an ISIS executioner. This is a quote for him, quoting this perfectly from him. This was done in the center of the city. They gathered people for this. They told us where we're going to stand in a certain formation, and the guy was there in front of us. One clear shot to the head finished them off. This is how ISIS controls the towns. They would make everyone in the town come out and watch as they killed people. And the rest of the town would be too afraid to fight against them. So this New York Times reporter, he let our government know that this guy was now back and living in Toronto. He's not the only one. Hundreds have returned to Canada now that Trump has basically destroyed ISIS. When Trudeau was asked about why nothing is going to be done about this, he replied, we saw this approach in the last election. We don't, it doesn't work to scare and divide Canadians. Scare and divide Canadians? As if asking about an ISIS terrorist executioner living freely in Toronto, we're just trying to scare and divide Canadians. There's no reason that that would actually be a concern. It's not like there are other countries in the world that are dealing with a major problem of ISIS terrorists. Just this week, there was another attack in Paris. A man stood outside an opera house with a knife and then as people were leaving, just started killing them. In Indonesia, a family bombed churches. A man and his two sons drove into one church with bombs and the wife and her daughters into another church. Who straps bombs on their children and then blows them up so that they can kill Christians? One of them, a little girl, eight years old, survived, and she's now the only one from her family who's alive. What does this mean as Christians? What do we do? God made a promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. 
this was a promise not to Abraham, but to the nation of Israel. What would, that would be established to the descendants of Israel. History has shown this to be true. There has never been a people group or a nation that has cursed Israel and flourished. On the other hand, nations that have blessed Israel have always succeeded. The relationship of the Jews and the church has always been kind of a complicated one. The church was started by Jews. Of course, Jesus Christ was a Jew, but beyond that, the apostles were Jews. The early church was made up completely of Jews. At the same time, the Jewish leaders were killing the members of the early church. One of them was Saul, who would become a Christian and would have his name changed to Paul. He would write most of the New Testament. He was a Jew. Eventually, Gentiles did become part of the early church, and this at first caused some great division. For one thing, the Jews thought the Gentile men should be circumcised, and the Gentile men were not really okay with that. The leaders of the church they had a conference at this conference with prayer and led by the Holy Spirit. They determined that God was not calling the Gentiles to follow the ritual rules of the Old Testament. There's a lot of history between the Jews and Christians, and it would make an interesting podcast to cover all that history. We have in common the Old Testament, which makes up the largest part of our Bible. The New Testament is much shorter than the Old Testament. The Bible is the history of the nation of Israel, and you can't read the Bible without seeing the land of Israel as given to the Jews by God. The Old Testament can be very confusing. There are parts of the Old Testament that are specifically for the Jewish people, and there are parts that are for us. For example, when God said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope in a future, he was actually talking about the nation of Israel. When God said, I love you with an everlasting love, he was talking about the nation of Israel. Now, we as Christians can learn from these verses about God's character. and We can learn that his love is everlasting. We can learn that he knows our future. But these verses specifically were written to the nation of Israel. There's a false teaching called replacement theology that states that all the promises God gave to the nation of Israel are now transferred over to us. This is not true. We are grafted into God's family, but the promises that were specifically to the nation of Israel are for the Jewish people, and they apply to the Jewish people today. So what parts of the Old Testament are for the church and what parts aren't? The truth is, there are definitely parts of the Old Testament the church does not follow. It does come down to the idea of Gentiles and Jews. The Bible is actually a very complicated book. I don't even know how many times I've read through it, but I know that every time I read through it, I learn something new. There are two kinds of laws in the Old Testament. One set of laws is for all of humanity, and one set of laws is specifically for the Jewish people. So, important thing to know is what is holy, which means set apart and sacred. God set the Jewish people apart as a holy nation. Following the history of the Jewish people from Abraham until today is fascinating. Even today, God has his hand in protecting the nation of Israel. The laws of the Old Testament given for the purpose of setting the Jewish people apart as a holy nation are not the laws we as a church need to follow. But God also wants us to be holy. And there are laws in the Old Testament meant to show us how to live a life that is set apart from the world and sacred. So what's the difference? How do we know? Actually, Phil Fisher does a really good job of explaining this in his children's video series, What's in the Bible? I love that series and highly recommend it. He compares this idea to a soccer game. There are some rules that are for the game. Don't use your hands, shoot between the goalposts, don't push people. There are some rules that might be just for the team. Maybe they have special socks they always wear or a statue they always like to hit before a game. Maybe they have a chant that they say or a special day they have set aside for practice. 
These are rules just for that team. These would be what we call ritual rules. So when you read the Old Testament, we have to determine what rules are for the game, we all need to follow those, and what rules are for the team, you know, the ritual rules for the Jewish people. We all follow the rules for the games, only the Jews need to follow the rules that are for the team. Like I said, reading the Bible is kind of complicated. I think because of that, many churches have just opted out of teaching the Old Testament. On Saturday, I received a message that a pastor that I admire, Andy Stanley, had preached a message saying the Old Testament doesn't matter for today, that we should unhitch ourselves from it. I decided to listen to the whole message and not just the clip, and I found the message posted on his Twitter account. It did kind of seem to me that that was the point he was making. Now, I'm extremely protective of the scriptures. I kind of think it goes back to my childhood. We had on our wall this poster with faces on it, and each face was a Christian who was currently in prison in Russia for reading the Bible. We would pray for each of these, and if they died, we would write beside their name that they had passed away. And if they were freed, we would write that they were freed beside their name. This had a profound impact on me, and it gave me a reverence for the Bible. And I decided as a child, I would rather die than give up even one piece of the Bible. Okay, so back to this weekend. I wrote a blog about this message and why I thought it was dangerous. I was actually really shocked to receive a direct message from Andy Stanley Sunday morning. And he wanted to clarify that he did believe the Old Testament was inspired and important for the church. And I have to say, I was really impressed that he would write me back. I really don't think I'm important enough for someone as famous as him to take the time to write me and answer some of my questions. I do have more questions for him and I'm gonna follow up on those to find out exactly where he stands. What I saw though that weekend was actually a huge positive and that was how outraged the church was. And I'm sure Pastor Stanley probably didn't see that as a positive. But for the church to be upset that a pastor would want to get rid of the Old Testament, that's good. It would be bad if we all said, yeah, sounds good. Let's just drop the Old Testament. It's hard to understand anyway. Okay, here's what the church needs to do. We need to stop worrying about if the world loves us. We need to not care if part of the Bible offends somebody. We need to preach Genesis, the prophecies, the whole Bible, even the hard parts. And we need to not be ashamed of the word of God. Look, if you're saying you like Jesus, but not the God of the Old Testament, then sorry, you can't be a follower of Jesus because Jesus is God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You can't have Jesus and not have God the Father. When we see God and his holiness, we see how completely unholy we are. We see what sin does. We see that we cannot meet God's standards. It's impossible. There's nothing we can do to take care of our sin problem. That's what the Old Testament teaches us. We see in Jesus what those standards look like lived out. People use this quote from Gandhi all the time. Even pastors use it. It goes like this. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are, are so unlike your Christ. Okay, this quote, quote is always used to shame us as Christians. Even pastors use this quote to shame us. But I'm not ashamed of it. When people use that quote to me, I always answer, yeah, that's because Jesus Christ is God. He is the example of what perfection looks like. He is perfection. He is an example of what holy looks like. There's a reason Christians are not like Christ. It's kind of because we're not God. We're not perfect. That's why we need Jesus. Because only someone who is holy and perfect and blameless could take the punishment for our sins. Our sins are what make us not look like Jesus and our sins are why we need Jesus. But the amazing thing is that we can be holy and we can be perfect in God's eyes. 
When we go to God and confess our sins and turn to him, he erases our sins. They're gone. In God's eyes, you're perfect. And when we face him one day and see him face to face, we'll be covered in the rightness, the righteousness of Jesus. If you've never done that, then why aren't you do it today? Just go to him. Confess your sins. Ask for forgiveness. He will forgive you and your sin will be gone. I'm Laura Lee Siemens and I'll see you next week. In the meantime, check out my webpage for videos, blogs, and past podcasts. That's Laura Lee Siemens, L-O-R-E-L-E-E-S-I-E-M-E-N-S, lauraleesiemens.com. I'll see you next week.